This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 347, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. And hopefully many of you came to the podcast today were attracted by the title, The Secret to Playing Fast. Well, every drummer wants to play fast. Every drummer wants to be smoking, ripping fast. What's the secret? And probably many of you are going, oh, well, it's probably if I just do this particular exercise or if I just take this groove and put my click on and slowly jack it up by five clicks and five clicks. You know, I don't know. That's the secret. It's going to be some magic bullet. So, yes, it does have a catchy title, but the answer may not be what you all are interested in hearing. At least from my perspective, well, let me, let me give you the secret to the magic bullet <laughs> to playing fast. The secret to playing fast is that you need to be able to play slow. Now, I could see a lot of you out there, oh man, what are you talking about, dude? To play fast, you have to play slow I don't get it. What does that mean? If you want to play fast, you have to play fast, and then you have to learn how to play faster, right? So, yes, the answer, of course, there's never any simple answer to anything, but philosophically, what I've sort of come up with through my own teaching and a lot of conversations with a lot of drummers at a lot of levels, I think many people would agree with this assessment. So, what do I mean by in order to play fast, you've got to play slow? Well, Let me begin by telling you a story. Many people have said, Daniel, I love your podcast because you're a good storyteller. I enjoy the stories you tell. So I'm going to start this off with a story, and that'll hopefully lead us into a more deeper discussion of how really the benefits of playing slow and how that can lead you to play fast or why that is beneficial in order to play fast. And what does fast even mean? Okay, so I'm going to take this story The beginning of it goes all the way back to 1991, when I was a student at the Dick Grove School of Music in Los Angeles. And one of the reasons that I went to this school, which sadly no longer exists, but it was a great school, was run by a very famous arranger and film composer for his day named Dick Grove. Probably many of you of my generation in your 40s and 50s, when you were in high school jazz band or stage band, you played Dick Grove Arrangements. Uh, Dick ran this school, and he had, it was a little bit like Berkeley College of Music up in Boston. Uh, it was a professional music school. The idea was to go there, learn to play lots of styles. And they had a tremendous faculty. And the reason I went there was because I wanted to study with a guy named Steve Houghton. Steve Houghton, probably many of you know him as an educator, uh, but he originally was a, a, a tremendous performer, making his career in the world. He went to University of North Texas, famous North Texas state in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas. And he uh, 
not only studied there, but then he taught there. When he was teaching there, people like Greg Bissonette studied under Steve. Uh, Steve played with tremendous artists like Freddie Hubbard, uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi Lutabak and Big Band are just uh, two of the artists that I can think of, but he was very well respected as a performer. And then he went on to become an educator and uh, was at the Musicians Institute in Los Angeles for many years and then um, moved over to Dick Grove, which is where I tapped in to his incredible teaching abilities. And then uh, he was very been very involved with uh, the Percussive Arts Society over the years. He was president uh, for, for quite a while, and uh, I always see him at the conventions and never... never uh, never uh, miss an opportunity to thank him for his great tutelage because he really was, I was so grateful I went to that school and studied with him. He's got a bunch of great books about styles, about big band drumming. Um, And nowadays he is the head of um, the jazz department at Indiana University, which of course is one of the most prestigious music schools in the country, right up there with North Texas State or University of North Texas, whatever it's called these days. Berkeley, College of Music, Juilliard, USC, uh, you name those top programs, and Indiana University is right up there. So, Steve Houghton comes into class one day in 1991, and he says, well, guys, I'm sorry I'm late, but I just came back from doing a Barry Manilow session. Thought, okay, Barry Manilow, kind of dorky, kind of pop ballady, not really my thing, but cool. And he said, the thing about these Barry Manilow sessions that I just learned that I never really realized is that all, you have to start these very slow power ballads by playing quarter notes on the hi-hat. Quarter notes on the hi-hat. So it's like, you know, Oh, Mandy, you can't and you can't without taking it. Right? And this is your hi-hat. And you have to play it that slow. So I'm going, wow, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that. So, on we go. A few years later, quite a few years later, actually, I'm uh, now based in New York. I'm driving home uh, from a concert with my girlfriend, soon to be my now wife, and she's a big Manilow fan. So, it's late at night. She puts on Barry Manilow's greatest hits on the car stereo and then proceeds to promptly fall asleep. I, on the other hand, have to drive home we have a, a ways to drive, so I'm listening to Barry Manilow's Greatest Hits. And I was like, all right, let me check these tunes out and really see what they sound like. Sure enough, Steve Houghton was not wrong. Quarter notes on the beginning of every single tune. And then maybe as they went, you know, the hi-hat picked up to eighths, maybe on the chorus. And then as the song built, by the end of the song, maybe the, the hi-hat or the ride cymbal is on 16th notes. So very effective device used by these, you know, power ballads. And of course, these were 1970s and 80s power ballads. Of course, Manilow, you know, was recording until very recently. I think he's still touring. But, you know, it was sort of a formula. And and we all know that formula. You know, power ballads have with it, been with us since the beginning of time. Um, but most drummers, I don't think when they're learning to play those kinds of songs, ever think, God, to play quarter notes. Okay, so very slow, tons of space. So I file that away. I confirm that. Now, um, in 2010, I moved to New York City. And at that time, I became really good friends with a piano player who 
when I first met him, said, hey, I love your drumming, and I'm actually involved with Graham Russell from Air Supply in creating a workshop that we're going to try to get, you know, a jukebox musical, as it were, of Broadway, of uh, Air Supply music to go to Broadway. Now, for those of you who don't know what a jukebox musical is, it is a musical that is based around a catalog of songs, either from a particular era or a particular group. So the most famous, perhaps, jukebox musical is Mamma Mia, which is a, an entire musical where the story is constructed to work with the lyrics of various ABBA songs, right? Very successful. Another jukebox musical is, was the one called We Will Rock You, which is around the music of Queen. Of course, most people know about Rock of Ages, which uh, isn't just one artist. It uh, sort of focuses on the hair metal scene of the 1980s. So there's a, a musical that, you know, again, the storyline uses the lyrics to, to tell the story, whatever the dramatic story is. So Air Supply uh, was kind of getting this together. Now, I should mention that Air Supply is made up of two gentlemen, Graham Russell, who is the primary songwriter uh, and sings some of the songs, but the other guy, Russell Hitchcock, has that really soaring high voice that... Um, that most people know and associate with the music of Air Supply. So I should mention at this point that I detested Air Supply. I thought they were one of the lamest groups of the 1980s and hated them when I was growing up because at that time I was really into hard rock and prog rock and, you know, not, not that kind of... I thought power ballads were sappy, thought they were stupid... I thought they were sentimental. I had no use for them whatsoever. Um, But because Graham Russell himself was actually going to be involved with this jukebox musical, I thought, well, this is cool. Chance to get to know this guy. Air Supply, I found out, had sold 80 million records. (laughs) 80 million records. Just chew on that for a minute. And I thought, all right, cool. I'll give this music another chance. Let me pull my preconceived notions out and address this music. And as we got more into the project and I started getting involved, I got to know Graham, who's like the coolest guy ever. You know, he's the most laid back rock star I think I've ever met in my life. Easy going, nice guy, very chill, very regular guy. No, not affected at all. Um, I realized that actually Air Supply's music was very cool. And in light of the pop music today, which generally doesn't really have a discernible verse or chorus. It's just sort of four chords that repeat over and over again. Or maybe doesn't have discernible or good lyrical content. You know, just sort of repeated line over and over again. Uh, you know, I actually found that that these Air Supply songs were really well-crafted and, and really great. And then I went and saw Air Supply Graham hooked us up with tickets, and it was like, damn, this band rocks really hard. And he kept saying, no, you know, we people think we're this 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 ooey-gooey power ballad thing. We, we're a rock band, and they, they killed it. And so now, all right, great, I'm involved with this project. I'm a big fan of Air Supply. My, I've been turned. And, you know, f- fine. So then he says, we, we're into this project for a while. We've been doing some of these showcases, trying to get... Uh, financing to take this jukebox musical to Broadway, which sadly, unfortunately, it, it didn't make it, um, but or at least has not so far. 
Uh, and it's very difficult to get a show financed and actually get it all the way to Broadway. But it was fun to be a part of it and that kind of have that experience and, and to know Graham. Uh, he, so at some point along the process, he says, all right, I have a new song and we're going to do a recording of this, a demo of this tune because we're going to feature it in the show. So, okay, here's my opportunity to do a Graham Russell you know, to do a power ballad and to put into play the Steve Houghton, Barry Manilow trick of playing those quarter notes on the hi-hat and seeing how that works and using that as an opportunity to develop a side of my drumming that perhaps I hadn't worked on in the past. So I began, I spent actually three days preparing for this session. Now, did I need to spend three days preparing? Maybe not. But the idea was to use the opportunity as a way to develop some aspect of what I was doing. And of course, I wanted to make a great impression on Graham. So, and by the way, you can learn much more about my philosophy about preparation. I did an entire podcast about that here on Drummer's Resource. You can go to session 309, which is called Tackling Life Part 1, Preparation. So, it's a hour plus long podcast where I talk all about what does it mean to prepare, how to prepare for something, even if we don't know what we're preparing for, what preparation means, et cetera, et cetera. So in my preparation, I developed an exercise that not only served me very well in developing my skills to, to, to play this song, but has actually done more for my groove than almost any other exercise and has really helped me to understand about playing fast. So this takes us back to the podcast title, which is, you know, the secret to playing fast is being able to play slow. So what does this have to do with speed? So let's step away from my story for the moment. I'll get back to that and talk more about the specifics of this exercise. Um, But let's just talk philosophically for a minute about what speed is and what it means and what we, how playing slow or how slowing things down can actually help us to play faster. So the the first thing, I always ask this question of my students, I always ask this question of my clinic audiences, and I will ask this question of you, my good listener, right now. What are the two things that drummers hate more than anything? I might rephrase, what are the two things that make drummers more uncomfortable than anything? Obviously, you could say anything. It's a broad topic. But to me, the answer is playing slowly and playing softly. Okay. Now, generally, when we develop as drummers, we are not interested in playing slowly and softly. We're interested in playing loud and fast because everything we see around us, especially today in the world of YouTube and our favorite bands, is about filling up space and playing as much as you can, as quickly as you can. And that's very impressive, right? You know, that's when we first see some drummer that can do all this stuff and can play fast and has all this technical facility, we go, damn, I want to do that, right? So what ends up happening with drummers is that they spend all their time learning to play fast, learning to be loud, and they don't really ever get to understanding uh, about concepts like space. And what ends up happening is they ignore playing softly and playing slowly. And then the more they ignore those things, the more that those things 
catch up to them. I'd say it's like a, a hairy monster in the closet, right? And if you ignore it and you turn away from it instead of confronting it, it just grows and grows and grows. And then it becomes more terrifying, which then leads us to avoiding it more. So instead, you know, of thinking about slowly and softly, drummers run the other direction. And then, of course, when they have to play that way, they're, they're not very effective at it. So let's go back again and talk about the benefits of playing slowly. Benefits of playing slowly. And I'm going to throw, throw a few more philosophical things at you here. The first is an axiom that I learned from Freddie Gruber, uh, who I studied with for about six years in the 90s. A lot of other guys did as well. Freddie not only would teach you technique, but he was full of axioms. He was full of wise words. And often, though, his wise words didn't really make sense. You had to think about them for a while. Uh, And then it dawned on you, wow, this is actually pretty deep. So one thing Freddie used to say all the time is that space equals time. Now, what do I mean by space equals time, right? It's like, well, you know, these are supposed to be drum lessons. This is not a class in physics. You know, you're thinking about Albert Einstein and E equals MC squared and all that. Space equals time. So to me, after thinking about this and then teaching it, you know, it took me probably a number of years to really understand what I think he meant. And what my understanding of it is that if you can understand how the body moves through space, in other words, as we move while we play the drums, and if we can have a clear understanding of that movement through space, then that is directly related to the time that we will produce, the tempo, the rhythm, the feel. Understanding our use of space directly affects those things. So the way that Freddie taught and the way that I teach is about slowing things down. And let me jump ahead with one other point and then I'll tie all these things together. Drummers that don't think about space, drummers that don't think about playing slowly or softly, the way that they learn is they often, and this was me for sure, and it's probably most of us, we utilize tension as a means of developing speed, right? So if, you know, when we start, we learn a groove, boop, bat, boop, boop, bat, right? That's probably the first groove that every drummer learns when they sit down to play. And then, of course, the second that they learn that groove, they get the hand-foot coordination, they try to play it as fast as they can, which makes perfect sense because we see all our favorite drummers doing that and we're impressed by people that can, that can you know, play fast. So we immediately try to play fast. And what is the mechanism we use in order to play fast? It is tension. So we go, okay, if I just turn up and I just squeeze my limbs and go, okay, now I can do it. I can do it. I play fast. Yeah. So cool. But you also realize shortly, at least hopefully you end up getting to this point, that tension alone is not the answer. And in fact, tension is the enemy. And if we rely on tension, then we will only ever be able to get to a certain amount of speed. And this is why a lot of students come to me. They're confused because they say, well, I've practiced for years and I've worked with a metronome and you know this and that, and yet I can't get any speed happening. Why? And I say, well, okay, let's look at how you're holding the sticks. Let's look at, you know, 
how you strike the drum. Let's look at how you position. And what I find is that, for example, you know, they are twisting, pushing their wrists out, or they're squeezing the hell out of the stick, or they're wrapping their index finger around the stick. They don't understand about grip uh, or about various hinges to let the stick move more freely. And so they're, you know, not only are they using tension as a way to speed up, but their bodies are riddled with tension, right? So tension, as we know, is a huge problem and it prevents us from being able to do what we want to do. So for example, if you hold your sticks and then push your wrists, your push your hands, your wrists out to the side, or you wrap your index finger around that stick, if you were to stand with your hand at your side and, you know, without a stick in it, and then push it out and then, you know, close your finger up into like a claw, that would be uncomfortable, right? And you would go, well, if I'm just going to stand here, if I'm standing here, why, why would I stand here and do something and add all this tension when I just could let my arm hang at my side? So it's the same analogy for drumming. Why would we walk down the street like someone, with, someone who had a physical deformity if we didn't need to, right? So when we walk, we just walk. But drummers often play the drums as if they have some kind of physical deformity, and then they put the sticks down and suddenly they straighten up and release all that tension. So tension is, a, is, a, is a, an evil force in our lives. And a lot of us have played in a place of tension for so long, we don't realize we're doing that and we don't know how to get untense. And so getting back to this idea of, you know, the karate kid, for example, the kid goes to the master and he wants to uh, become a master. So... The guy says, you know, Mr. Miyagi says, well, paint my fence, wax my car. And the kid's going, I told you I wanted to learn karate, but I'll do what you want. And he doesn't realize, of course, that he's learning karate by moving through these motions. And the same is true with how Freddie taught and how I teach, which is this idea of deliberate practice, breaking things down to the fundamental elements, so much so that you don't realize that you're learning the drums, you're simply learning how to move your body in new ways or to get the stick to do something in very minimal kinds of ways. That when we start putting those together, eventually it begins to resemble drumming. But what you've been doing this whole time is learning how to do these motions and these moves without tension and learning how to set up new levels of consistency, clarity, articulation, which I talk a lot about in, uh, in, a, in a, a couple episodes back. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an episode called The Importance of Form. So the point here is that if we can eliminate tension, if we can learn to understand space, both of those things involve playing slowly. And if, you know, so think about the use of space, okay? If most drummers, when they play, they only think about the down. And I have a whole sort of philosophy. The more I teach, the more my overriding philosophy is, it's all about the up. And I'm probably going to do an episode about it's all about the up. But the basic idea here is that drummers think mostly about throwing the stick down. They don't think about how they're going to prepare to throw the stick down. They also don't think about using gravity to simply allow the arm or the leg or the hand or the foot to fall and use the weight of that 
to produce the sound and to instead put the work into how you're going to set that up. Now, again, a lot of the exercises that I do that evolve around this concept are about doing the work on the up. And I don't want to get into too much detail, but then allowing the stick to fall. In this way, you can learn how to be absolutely relaxed, absolutely natural, and you can have a much deeper awareness of the space that you are moving through as you create your time. Space equals time. Most drummers, when they play, don't think about the up, don't think about the lift. They don't worry about that. Their total focus is on the down and how much they're going to throw the stick down. And as a result of that, what ends up happening is they often get to the goal, get to the surface just a few microseconds early, but they're always a few microseconds early. And this may not register when you're just playing something, playing a groove, it sounds fine. But if you were to really strip away, or if you were to record yourself and listen, or if you were to put it against a click, or if you were to, you know, break things down a little bit more, what you would realize is that A, there's tension involved, and B, you're always getting there ahead. And so you go, gosh, my groove, I'm playing that groove, but it just doesn't sound in the pocket. You know, that term in the pocket is thrown around so you know, so everybody uses it today. But what it really means to me is that we are allowing the weight of the arms and legs to drop. We are not forcing everything down. Instead, we're thinking about how we're setting things up. Imagine if you throw a ball up in the air and then it comes down and you catch it. You just go with it. You wait for it to come to you. If we're able to throw our arms and legs essentially up in the air and let them drop, then we can we won't be those few milliseconds early. We won't be in a rush. We won't be nervous. And I think, honestly, if you listen to someone like Levon Helm or Steve Jordan or Steve Gadd, you know, or James Gadson, these sort of masters of the groove or Al Jackson Jr., you know, that everybody strives, or John Bonham, everybody strives to play like these guys. And so what do they do? They look at transcriptions and they try to match the limb independence of what was going on in this groove. It has nothing to do with limb independence. It has to do with allowing things to happen rather than forcing things to happen. Now, if we can get to this place where we allow things to happen, if we can get to this place where we understand space more, if we can get to this place where we eliminate tension and in playing exercises very slowly, begin to develop a new sense of clarity and articulation and consistency in what we do, then we are saying something for real. We're not hiding behind a lot of loud instruments. We're not rushing to get to where we want to go to. We are letting the groove happen, right? I always say that a sense of swing means, and this sense of pulse, which in in my opinion affects every great style of music that's come about in the last hundred years. And I've talked a lot about this, sort of the combination of African-American and European-American here in the United States produced types of music that feel great. They have forward momentum, but they're also laid back. And to me, that is the essence of swing. Driving the time forward, letting it also be laid back. But that's hard. How do you give something forward momentum and also have it be laid back at the same time? And the way you do that is, 
I, I teach people to do that. I teach people to swing. And that doesn't just mean playing ding, ding, da, ding. It really means digging into this feel of, of the music. So I know I'm, I, you know, you might think I'm absolutely insane and out of my mind. And what are you talking about? Air supply and, and speed and space and all these kinds of things. But it is a way of thinking about how we approach, how we approach what we do. So the benefits of playing slowly allow us, let me just some, some, summarize here, clarity of space, playing without tension, paying much closer attention to our form. Those three things allows us then when we begin to speed up, when we begin to speed up, then we can truly be in a place where we can play fast. So how do we, how do we get there? Well, the, the trick, if you will, of being able to successfully play fast is to stay relaxed while you do that. And without an understanding of these various things, tension, space, and form, then we will not be able to stay relaxed as we move ahead into the realm of speed. That's where it's at. So let me tell you about this exercise I came up with in developing this groove for the Air Supply song. And it's a simple exercise, but of course, simple doesn't mean easy. And the idea is you're going to start by playing quarter notes on the hi-hat about at this tempo. You might even slow it down even more. I set my click at 100, and I think I'm playing half of that uh, on, on the hi-hat. So the way it's going to go is you'll play, I'm sort of tapping on my chest here, about this speed. And then what you want to do before you even add any other elements is you're going to lift and, 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 and. And you're going to consciously think about bringing your hi-hat hand up in the air on the and and letting it fall on the quarter note. And, and, and what you're going to do is you're going to count not the part where you're hitting, you're going to count the up. And, and, and. And do this with a click for a while until your focus is on the lift just as much, if not more, than it is on the down. Practice learning to just let the hand fall, drop, without letting it go, don't let it fall out of the grip, just let it fall onto the hi-hat. And you could just do this on a pad for a while. And... And relax. And don't try to do anything more than that. And, 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 and. Okay, step two. Now, you're going to do the same thing, but with your snare drum hand. And you're just going to put it on two and four. So if your time again is here, you're going to go like this. And and four. Up, drop, up, drop, up, drop, up, drop. Now get both hands going, and the one hand goes, and, and, the hi-hat hand, and, one, and, two, and, three, and, four. Add the snare drum, and, drop, and, drop, and, two, and, four, and, two. 
okay? Now you're playing quarter notes on the hi-hat and you're playing two and four on the snare. Now, with your bass drum foot, and one, and three, and one, and three. Now combine the hi-hat again with the bass drum. And one, and two, and, 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 and three, and, and. When you lift the bass drum foot, just lift the leg enough that the heel kind of comes off the ground, the beater ball opens up, but your toe stays on the pedal. So you have your, a relaxed ankle. And then just let your leg fall and roll through so that you're rolling from the front of the pedal to the back of the pedal and just let the ball of the foot smack that beater ball and then you roll back out again. So you're just lifting and dropping your leg. Now this is, I'm not suggesting that this be the be-all, end-all technique for playing bass drum. But for this exercise, the idea is to let the limbs drop, okay? Let the limbs fall. And to think about the up, to think about the space. Again, a big part of what I talk about is it's all about the up. If we could focus on the up and the setup and the development of each stroke and then let gravity take it and just let it drop, we can develop that incredible pocket that everybody, that mysterious pocket that, you know, is so difficult to describe. And of course, I'm doing this over a podcast, not on a drum set. But um, there, there is a, a lesson that I will link to in the show notes where I demonstrate this concept. It's a, a lesson I did on Drumeo, which is called, I think it's called The Evolution of Timekeeping. And really, it's sort of like to do with the evolution of the pulse. But I'll, I'll put the, the section about 48 minutes in where I sort of demonstrate this idea. Now, let's, you put the kick drum and the snare drum together. So now you're going to go lift, drop, lift, drop, lift, drop, lift, drop, and one, and, 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 and you're always singing the ands, singing the part where you lift and then let stuff fall, and, 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 right? Now put everything together, hi-hat, and, and, remember the hi-hat still playing quarter notes. And, 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 and. Everything lifting and dropping, locking with the click. You can put on a Barry Manilow song. You can put on a classic Air Supply song. I'll, I'll put some links to those in the show notes as well and uh, try to lock in with those. Now, again, this seems like, gee, what's the big deal, Daniel? But if you really start thinking about the ands, the lifts, and it's as if, again, like you throw a ball up in the air and then you catch it, and that's how your arm comes down. You throw your arm up in the air and let it fall, totally dead weight like a tree in the forest. You will be using gravity to, to help you to develop this amount of space and this pocket, as it were. So now what you want to do is you want to double up your hi-hat. So you're going to go here, one, and, 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 and now I'm going to double the hi-hat up, and, 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 back to quarter notes, and, 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 and. Now the idea is, of course, the fundamental element of rock and roll is the kick on one and three, the snare on two and four. This is sort of the pillar of rock. 99% of rock beats essentially 
have this at their core. There may be a lot of other stuff going on. This is what's at their core. If you can start to shift what you do between hi-hat playing quarter notes, hi-hat playing eighth notes, and back again, you probably, first of all, are going to notice how that throws you off your one and three on the kick and two and four on the snare. So, ah, I've got to get these two things where I can seamlessly go between these two subdivisions on my hi-hat and not let that affect this and, and, pa, and, and, pa, and, and, pa. Okay? So when I practiced for the air supply thing, I just did this. And I just said, I'm just going to play quarter notes and play the most basic groove possible at this very, very slow tempo. And I'm going to do it for a long time and see what happens. And what ended up happening is that I began to see groove in a whole new way over a three-day period. It was really exciting. And then, you know, I didn't play any fills. I didn't do anything. I just kept this groove. And I did it with a click. Again, about 50 or 100 BPM. It's kind of the same thing. It just depends how much subdivision you want in the click. Uh, And um, then the last thing I did was I took my subdivision on the hi-hat and I changed it to shuffled eights. So I have, and sorry, emails are coming in and I didn't mute my email. So sorry for the the pings and pongs you're hearing. Um, uh, Okay, so now, and, 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 and. Now we double it up to eighth notes. And, 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 and now we turn it to a shuffle. And two, and three. Back to eighth notes. Again, thinking about lifting and dropping the kick and snare. It's very simple and it's very challenging. It will bring out a lot of stuff about your playing. And you may realize that you've never thought about the lift. You may never have thought about letting your limbs drop. Now you might say, well, gosh, I'm playing quietly. What if I want to play louder? You can play louder and you can add anything you want to this basic formula. But the idea is if you don't have the basic formula in place, if you can't feel the way that that music moves, then it's not happening. So let's extrapolate this exercise for speed. The idea is if I can play this exercise totally relaxed, totally in the pocket at this very slow, very slow tempo, now I... As I begin to turn that click up, I am going to expect myself to continue to play in a relaxed manner, and I will have so much clarity from slowing it down and creating all that space that as the tempo goes up, as I increase the click, as I play faster tunes, I am also going to be uh, producing much greater clarity in my groove. Now you might say, well, how do you know? What what dif- you know, what's the what difference does it make? Well, it made an amazing difference in my in my playing, in my drumming. And especially, you know, being I'm a jazzer for my straight eighth drumming, my rock drumming, I had a whole new way of thinking about it, had much greater clarity. And of course, fills, we can slowly add fills into this picture, which I do with my students. We can add much more, but we start in this basic place. And again, that is why I'm saying get clarity with a slow groove that allows you to play tension-free, that allows you to understand that space. So when you decrease the amount of space between beats, you can keep it relaxed and you will have much, much greater clarity, much greater consistency than Somebody who simply either uses tension or just rushes into playing fast. 
the faster we go, the, the lighter we've got to play, and the more relaxed we've got to play. If you look at the guys who play blast beats, they're not hitting hard. They're hitting actually quite softly, and they're letting the gear do pick, you know, they're using wooden beaters, and, and they're, they're, they're allowing the microphones to pick up the sound. And they'll be able to tell you, you got to be relaxed. You got to play soft to get the speed thing together. So all of those things you can really define when you're playing slowly. And I guess that's really what this whole thing has been about, is about the benefits of playing slowly so that you can, you know, not only play fast, but you can increase your clarity, increase your consistency. I use these words over and over and over again because that's what it's all about, kids. That's why Steve Gadd can sit down and play a simple rock beat, and he gets hired by Paul Simon and Chick Corea and, you know, James Taylor. And the other 999 guys you might hear play this beat don't, right? That's what it comes down to. So, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope I've clarified things and not confused them for you. I hope you enjoyed my storytelling. And uh, if you have any questions, of course, hit me up, uh, danielglass.com. And there's always the Facebook page, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator, where we're having a lively conversation about all of these topics. So have a great one. Uh, Good luck getting your your speed together. And uh, we'll see you out there. Have a great one.